Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Past prime, Amazon disappoints as the COVID sales boom fades. Wall Street wallop, big banks taking aim at the unvaccinated. And Scarlet sees, well, Scarlet. The Black Widow actress sues Disney over its streaming release. It's Friday, let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move once again, and what a week it's been. Robin Hood's debut failed to impress. Beijing says it's okay with tech IPO success. Amazon sales growth under some duress, and when the Fed starts tapering, well, that's anyone's guess. The great news is there's no time to digress. We have a very fun show coming up. My interview with Robin Hood CEO Vlad Tenev up shortly. Plus, renowned entrepreneur and author Malika Chopra, daughter of Deepak Chopra, talks about her brand new book, introducing the concept of mindfulness and meditation to younger children and big kids, in my case too, because I love her books. For now, it's the last trading day of July and Amazon's unwanted earnings delivery dragging the Nasdaq lower. Also, no help from the Robin Hood the hood, Robin Hood, I mean, lower pre-market after falling 8% Thursday in its Wall Street debut. That Friday feeling in Europe as well. The majors there pulling back from all-time highs. The latest German growth numbers disappointed, even as the broader Eurozone recovery continues. If you take a look at those numbers, while Eurozone inflation rose above the European Central Bank's target. So it's a mixed bag there, as you can see the Cacaron there over in France flatlining at this moment, which is the outperformer. Meanwhile, in Asia, investors suffered the worst month for stocks since the start of the pandemic, led by rising COVID cases in the region combined with China's regulatory crackdown on big tech, despite, of course, Beijing's attempts to soothe investors' nerves this week. Yep, it's a busy Friday. Let's get to the drivers. Amazon delivers a disappointment as pandemic-fueled growth slows. Shares are down almost 7% in pre-market trade. The company reported 27% year-on-year revenue growth, but that was not enough to satisfy Wall Street. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, and I think we have to put that price move in the context of the broader price moves that we've seen over the past 18 months. But it does feel like the expectations for these earnings and for the forecast, too, were built on COVID-era foundations. And that's bound to have slowed, surely. Yes, Julia, this had to be expected at some point. I think this underscores two things. One, the difficulty in forecasting what's coming next in this strange economy. Amazon, Amazon CFO himself admitted that they, that they haven't done a good job, as he put it, nailing COVID, that they've overshot their expectations in previous quarters. And now they're seeing the come down. I think it also shows that Amazon, perhaps among the other tech companies, is more vulnerable to the reopening, given uh, the surge in online shopping that we saw during the pandemic. And the CFO on the call saying that, look, people are now getting vaccinated. Vaccinations. They're getting out there shopping offline. They're at home less. They have less time 
time to shop online. So that's why you see uh, this deceleration. But but it's interesting if you look at the, the business as well. Yes, they were they were more profitable than expected. That was good news. But most of that came from the higher margin parts of the business, the likes of AWS, their, their sort of uh, burgeoning advertising business. That section was up some 87% uh, in terms of of sales and this you know it talks it speaks to a sort of higher cost uh, era that they're in as well they're still expanding their fulfillment network even though it nearly doubled in size over the past 18 months they're still not back he said to the same degree of efficiency that they saw pre-pandemic in terms of things like one day delivery and this will not shock you Julia this was really interesting though hiring is ex- increasingly expensive and difficult for Amazon they say that they've brought forward a planned uh, uh, wage increase that they're, they're spending a lot on signing uh, and incentives, and they're still finding it hard, and they expect that to continue. That, to the CFO, is the key inflationary pressure they're seeing at the moment. Oh, I mean, that was such a brilliant summation, I think, of what we saw there, Claire. I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, net income was up 50% year on year. Let's be clear here. And actually, your point about the hiring, not even just the challenges, there's the sheer numbers here. The company had 1.335 million employees at the end of June, up 50 52% year over year. I mean, this is a monster business and we just have to understand the, the, the challenges that they face within that, even as we see, and you pointed it out, the performance in some of the other businesses like advertising, like the entertainment business is part of the future too. And we just have to wait and see what that brings. You know, I think this, this, it's worth remembering when you look at Amazon, it's much more now than just the retail business. It's a huge, sprawling sort of empire. And, and I think one of the most instructive statistics that you can look at when you when you look at this business is, is AWS in particular. Uh, this, this quarter, 13% of revenue, 54% of operating income. So that just tells you a lot of what you need to know. That is the sort of profit engine of the business. It continues to be that. The, the new CEO, Andy Jassy, is, of course, the former head of AWS, the man who sort of built it from the ground up, he pointed out in his comments in the earning release that, that companies are still sort of transitioning into the cloud and requiring these services. So that continues to be a, a major driver uh, for the business studio. But again, you know, Amazon is, is vulnerable to this reopening. And I think they are guiding and sort of trying to manage people's expectations to, to slower growth rates going forward. Yes, as you said, that tells you everything you need to know. And you told us everything we need to know. Claire Sebastian, great job. Thank you so much for that. Happy Friday. Okay, let's move on. No status, no signing in. Goldman Sachs says its employees must say whether or not they've had the COVID vaccine or been denied entry to their workplace. The bank says, quote, if you do not report your vaccine status to Goldman, your ID card will not work to enter the building. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to see you. It's not just Goldman Sachs. I mean, they're making a statement and it's a bold one here, but we've seen corporate America certainly step up and say, And actually, this does feel targeted towards the unvaccinated. It is going to be logistically more difficult to do your job if you do not take the vaccine. It is. Look, and patience is wearing thin for Mm. the unvaccinated uh, in the office. And so many of these industries want to get people back in the office. I mean, you look at the banking culture of clients and and, and how it is so face to face. Um, Some of these banks are saying, Morgan Stanley, for example, saying that to be in the building, you'll need to be vaccinated. And clients in client meetings will have to be vaccinated as well. So you imagine that's a really big, um, a really big, important 
uh, impetus for a lot of these people to get the vaccine. And we're hearing from some of these banking officials that they really do have really high uptake of the vaccine already. People want to get back to work. You know, I was talking to Johnny Taylor, who is the CEO of the Society for Human Resource Management, and saying, is this a new tone? I mean, is corporate America saying you have to be vaccinated to go back in the office? And he said yes. And they're also implementing, you know, other kinds of testing and tracking regimes just to make sure you can get back to work. Listen. There are some organizations that are trying one more step before that. They're saying, if you choose not to be vaccinated, then you will have to be tested several times during the week on your own dime, and you will have to wear a mask in the workplace, and not any mask, but that N95 surgical mask. I mean, we are going to, at the end of the day, make this a little uncomfortable for you because you're making it uncomfortable and, and the workplace less comfortable for your colleagues. You know, Julie, it's really been a sea change this week. The leadership from corporate uh, America on this made more difficult, I think, by the Delta variant and everything right. we are learning every moment about the Delta variant. I think a lot of companies thought they would be almost fully staffed in the office uh, by September. Some are now pushing that back a little bit. But even the companies that are saying you don't have to be in the office by September are still saying, oh, by the way, please get the vaccine. Yeah, it's a game changer. We have no choice. If there were any degree of choice about trying to manage this, wearing masks, um, getting around this without taking the vaccine, I think the Delta variant has said it's not happening. Christine, very quickly, the largest employer in the United States that the federal government now saying you have to get a vaccine, too. Absolutely. And contractors to the federal government. So this is where you're starting to see corporate America and the government starting to really lead on this. I'm seeing a lot of talk about exemptions for health and for for religion. Uh, You know, doing the research, there are very, very rare religious exemptions um, for the vaccine. And again, I think a lot of people want to be able to do their job. So uh, in banking in particular and some of these other industries, you really can't bring home the bacon if you're not in there with in the arena, really, to, to mix the metaphors with the other workers and clients. So we'll see. I, I think that you're going to have pretty high uptake in the banking industry in particular. Yeah. Watch this space. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Have a great weekend. You too. OK, on to Disney's dispute. Scarlett Johansson is alleged breach of contract over the release of the Black Widow movie on the streaming service Disney Plus, as well as in cinemas. Frank Pelota joins us now. Frank, what do we make of this? Because she clearly decided not to take so much of the money up front. She decided to take a cut of the upside of the box office receipts. And then, of course, it went streaming on Disney Plus at the same time. And I've seen some reports saying she lost out to the tune of 50 million dollars as a result. Yeah, that's that's what we're seeing on the base level here. But I want to kind of take a step back and really talk about this lawsuit in the bigger thing that is happening in Hollywood right now. We're inside of this transitional moment in Hollywood, a really pivotal moment where we're trying to figure out how we're going to watch our movies, television shows, general entertainment in the future. But the other thing we need to be talking about and what this lawsuit really brings into play is how is the talent and the creators going to be properly compensated for that content. And that's really what this lawsuit boils down to. And it's not just at Disney, it's happening across Hollywood right now. So basically, you know, Joe Hansen, who is one of the biggest stars in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one of the biggest stars has brought in billions of dollars to Disney and Marvel through some of her movies, is arguing that 
by putting this movie on streaming, you cannibalized my salary, which I said I was going to take from box office receipts. And now we're going to see this battle because Disney came right back with a very scorching kind of statement that was just like, you know, called her claims pretty much baseless. So we're going to see how this kind of plays out. But this speaks to really the evolution and growing pains that Hollywood is going through right now. Yeah, I mean, you see this. In other industries, too, a paradigm shifts and the talent has to renegotiate with whoever the managers of the industry are just to make sure that they're getting the right cut, too. It reminds me of Taylor Swift when streaming happened and she pulled her music from Spotify. Someone takes a stand and the whole industry adjusts. But Disney Plus is, or doesn't, but Disney Plus is uh, just one of the names here. How have the other movie studios handled this? Because clearly it will have come up before. So let's talk about our sister studio, Warner Brothers, who is under the same parent right. company as Warner Media. They put all of their movies uh, on HBO Max, and that reportedly caught a lot of their talent by surprise. So you look at someone like Gal Gadot, who is Wonder Woman, and Patty Jenkins, who directed Wonder Woman. There was reports that you know Warner Brothers came to them and gave them like an extra $10 million each. And we've seen this pop up throughout the industry overall. We've seen kind of Mark Wahlberg have some issues with Paramount and Infinite going directly to Paramount Plus. We've seen how Netflix has kind of adjusted their kind of negotiations with talent. We're gonna keep seeing this happen and happen over and over again. Will this ultimately go to trial? I'm a little dubious of that, but it's beyond trial at this point. It's made a statement about how we're going to adjust. And anytime there's a new medium in Hollywood, you see these bumpy rolls when it comes through how much studios want to make and how much they're willing to pay in terms of success. Yes. Who wins? Talent or studio? Who knows? Meanwhile, the lawyers and the agents rub their hands together and smile broadly in the interim. It's a Hollywood story as old as Hollywood itself. It truly is. <laughs> yes. Frank Plater, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. China says it's traced the origin of a COVID-19 outbreak in the city of Nanjing to a flight from Russia. Meanwhile, more than 41,000 people in Beijing are under lockdown after the city confirmed on Thursday its second local coronavirus case in almost six months. Let's get more from Stephen Zhang in Beijing. Stephen, great to have you with us. What more do we know? What you does is say the authorities have now traced the origin of this cluster to, to that flight on July 10th that carried confirmed cases. They say the airport's cleaning staff that cleaned that flight did not follow protocols. That's how they got infected and then contaminated their working environment, which happens to be one of the country's busiest aviation hubs, leading to this virus to spread not only among their co-workers, but also travelers passing, passing through the terminals. So now, of course, this cluster has spread across China to multiple locations, including in Beijing. This is all very alarming because one, this is a Delta variant we are talking about. And two, it calls into question of the efficacy of China's vaccines because more than 90% of the staff at the Nanjing airport actually had been fully vaccinated. And then, as you mentioned, we are starting to local authorities reimpose some of the more draconian measures we hadn't seen for some time, not, on, not only in Beijing, but also in places like Zhang Jiajie in central China, where the authorities have placed their entire population of more than 
one and a half million residents under lockdown and also shutting down that region's very popular tourist attractions in the middle of the peak summer travel season. Not to mention that once busy Nanjing airport has been closed down as well. So all of this obviously presenting the leadership here with a familiar question of trying to strike a balance between containing the virus and growing the economy. But so far, we're not seeing any signs of them changing their approach of uh, zero tolerance towards locally transmitted cases. So, Julia, expect to see more lockdowns and a sharp drop in domestic tourism and travel-related consumption in the near future. Julia? Yes, they act fast and in big size. Stephen Zhang in Beijing, thank you for that update there. The International Space Station briefly lost control Thursday as a newly docked Russian space module inadvertently fired its thrusters. The mishap temporarily knocked the ISS out of position. NASA says the crew were never in danger and that they have not found any damage to the station itself. Up next, the road ahead for Robinhood, the trading app CEO on regulatory risk and meditation for minors. The author and entrepreneur who thinks mindfulness could be the key to helping children deal with pandemic stress and much more. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move into the digital money revolution. The International Monetary Fund says it has a critical role to play as the world accelerates its use and adoption of digital currencies. I caught up with the IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Giogeva, and started by asking her view on what's taking place around the world today. This is a revolution in terms of opportunities to serve you, the consumers, with technology that makes uh, payments instantaneous, cheaper for everyone. Uh, It is also a way in which the public and the private sector are stepping forward. The public sector with central bank digital currencies and the private sector with innovations on stable coins and uh, e-money as well as with offering investors the opportunity to put their money into digital assets. What it it is also is an evolution because for digital money to take over, we need the infrastructure in physical terms, but we also need the institutional infrastructure. In other words, the regulatory environment that builds confidence and allows to capture the good of digital money and manage the bad, the risks that come with crypto uh, currencies in terms of cyber attacks or uh, criminal activities. Where do you see this going Ultimately, because I know you've spent many years working with the Central Bank of Bahamas, for example, who and we've had them on the show have introduced the sand dollar, the central bank digital coin. Then, on the other hand, we've got a nation like El Salvador that's decided to make Bitcoin legal tender. So they've gone for a decentralized digital coin. And then you've got the more traditional route of a central bank digital coin. Do we need to separate what we're seeing here in terms of use and what it means for these nations going forward? It is very important to clarify what is what. Central bank digital currencies are backed by the state 
and they are secured with the ability of the state to guarantee the functioning of uh, this uh, new way of payment. With the same uh, token, when we talk about private sector digital money, stable coins or e-money, when they are backed by assets and they are issued in one particular currency, like the USDC is issued in dollars, they are substitutable one to one to currency. In other words, you can trust them. But when we talk about crypto assets like Bitcoin, they are not backed by assets and they are not convertible into a national currency. In that sense, this is an investment class, not really money, although that can be used for payments. I also asked her whether the shift that we're seeing will change the US dollar status as the world's reserve currency in the future, as well as we uh, talked about El Salvador's decision to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Listen in. It is a sovereign decision, but it doesn't make it a good decision because adopting Bitcoin that is highly volatile as a means of payment in a country creates multiple risks. First, it creates risks for the finance authorities when they collect taxes. How much have they collected, given that the value of Bitcoin can go up and down? They may be lucky, they collected more than they projected, or unlucky. And then how are they going to pay pensions and education uh, and health expenditures? Secondly, it creates a problem for vendors. How much are they earning? They don't know. It may be a lot or a little. And that makes the functioning of the economy uh, subject to a high risk that is not necessary to take. And last but not least, Bitcoin being mined with high use of energy at the time we are fighting climate change, is not the best avenue to take. Um, mining bitcoins is the average energy consumption of, of a mid-sized country like uh, Denmark or the Netherlands. So for all these reasons, we do not see bitcoin being a currency. We do see it being an asset. And in that sense, we do not recommend to our members to go in this direction when they think of ways of improving how payments domestically and internationally are being made. One of the critical questions, and I'm going to wrap up on this, is whether the US dollar in its current form or in a digital form will remain the world's reserve currency, the main reserve currency in five years time? Or will we be substituting a digital X of whatever form? Yes, it will remain on the strength of the US economy, the depth of the US capital markets and the incredible innovation capabilities of US businesses. I am confident that we will see the exploration of a digital dollar advancing. And uh, 
I also expect to see shifts in the composition of reserve currencies as it has been happening over time. As long as we have strong U.S. economy, yes, the U.S. dollar will be reserve currency. But you're not willing to say whether it will be the U.S. dollar in its current form or a Fed coin, for you example. <laughs> I, I would expect that you and I would have our digital wallets. And in 10 years time, uh, we would say, what? There was this paper money. Why did we have the paper money? Uh, <laughs> so uh, I think the future of the uh, monetary system is to uh, continue with digitalization. But let me just make a very simple point. We have been on this journey for quite some time. Yes. Using your credit card is using digital services. What we are seeing is new technology, blockchain, making transactions much faster and more um, effectively inclusive for everybody around the world, but also presenting, and let's not trivialize that, presenting very serious new risks, new risks of uh, cybercrime, uh, new risks in terms of protecting our um, individual rights of privacy, right. uh, new risks of bad uh, uh, actors uh, hiding behind digital to do uh, very bad uh, things. So we have to manage these risks and we can only do it together. And uh, where does the, the world meet on this topic? Right here at the IMF. <laughs> greater connectivity, greater digitization means greater vulnerability, to your point. We, we all have to be careful of these risks, too. And we have a date in 10 years' time to compare wallets, and we'll do it at the IMF, I hope. <laughs> Crystalina, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for that. Countdown's on. Coming up after the break, Robin Hood went public Thursday amid a swirl of questions over future growth, regulation, and even whether CEO Vlad Tenev has the right qualifications for the job like doing the Wall Street regulator FINRA's proficiency test, for example. Are you tempted to do the exam? Just do the exam and shut everybody up. <laughs> yeah, we don't think that's, uh, that's required at this point. And, <laughs> okay. uh... You'll do it when Jack Dorsey does it. Is that the message? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> More on Vlad's big day after the break. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the last trading day of the week and the month. A soft open overall, as you can see, after a few challenging days for global investors. A nice read, though, on economic growth in Europe today. U.S. GDP also coming in solid, too, although weaker than expected. But prices still delivering a negative punch. Eurozone inflation now above European central bank's targets. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation stabilized in July, but still remains at elevated levels. The big worry, of course, for investors, will growth slow even as inflation pressures mount? There's one dreaded word for that, and it's called stagflation. Expect to hear that more and more if these numbers persist. Now, some pre-August angst for Amazon, too, shares suffering a post-Bezos fall back to earth after its revenue miss. You can see it down there, 7%. Pinterest also getting pinched too as user growth slows that stock down some 17% pre-market. As you can see though, Amazon's still trading $3,346 a share. You've got to be priced for perfection in terms of earnings at those kind of levels. 
Okay, it's the first full trading day on the Nasdaq for Robinhood. And right now, we can give you a sense of where it's trading in the start of the session, if we can. Up some six-tenths of 1%, taking back some of yesterday's decline. That's still below the $38 a share IPO price. But clearly, of course, it's early days. Perhaps it's also reflecting some of the shorter and longer-term challenges that the firm faces. Among those, and I asked CEO Vlad Tenev, what would the plan be if regulators blocked their primary source of revenue? And what allows them to charge zero commissions, of course, too? It's the business model, something known as payment for order flow. Listen to what he had to say. I think the business model that that we've introduced and which has really become the the standard business model for our industry is working for everyday Americans. I mean, just look at the amount of of new customers, new investors that didn't have access before that now have access to to the markets. Um, So I I think the business model that we've introduced by eliminating commissions industry-wide has had profound effects. Um, And I think We could tell the story uh, a little bit more, and you should see us continuing to do that. And I agree with you, and I do think you have had a profound effect. But what happens if that, the ability to utilize payment for order flow goes away? Because that comes to the core of of what you've been able to provide in terms of zero commission access. Well, what I would say is um, you look at payment for order flow on the equity side, and we're generating about two and a half cents per hundred dollars in in traded volume. So it's actually, you know, by uh, quite a modest revenue stream. And Robinhood's continuing to diversify, even within the transaction-based revenue segment. Um, You can see that uh, other assets like crypto have been making up a, a larger share as time goes on. And we have other other lines as well as we see cash management and our spending and saving products continue to mature. Um, as we see Robinhood Gold get more and more investment, uh, I think you'll see us continue to diversify our revenue. So we're, we're going to be less dependent over time on any of our individual segments. This is quite fascinating. And I think there will be people here yelling at the television when they watch this and saying, hang on a second, it's a huge chunk of your revenues. But the diversification, I think, is about the growth opportunities going forward and justifying the valuation that that we see you getting already. One of the things you've talked about is potentially retirement accounts, potentially going into financial services options, too. And I just wonder whether or not you're a victim of your own success and that you bring all these younger people on and you give them access to financial markets, but then they go on to other people who have perhaps a bigger name, bigger assets, uh, Charles Schwab, for example. How do you retain these customers and how are you going to get the people that you have on now interested in things like retirement accounts and investing for the future as opposed to trading on a day or a shorter term basis? Well, we've been very, very pleased with the engagement and the retention that we've been seeing among our customer base. And I think it's really two things going forward. One is improving the the service level and making sure that customers get the right type of customer support in a timely way uh, when they need it. And that's, that's very important, along with infrastructure scalability and being available uh, on a uh, technology level, having the best possible customer support is is our biggest focus. And then the other thing is continuing to grow with customers in terms of offering them products that they, that they could benefit from. And that's where additional account types and additional tools for investors 
especially ones that encourage first-time investors to grow into long-time investors, um, is, is a big part of the brokerage roadmap. And not to mention our investments in our crypto business and in the payments area where uh, we think there's going to be a lot of, of growth and further customer engagement over time. The goal is to be the most trusted and most culturally relevant money app worldwide. So you see us expanding um, beyond investing as well as beyond just the U.S. I think you said it perfectly because right now trust is paramount. What do you think is the defining thing that you can do between now and the future? Let's give it two years, three years in order to ensure that you have maximum trust relative to your peers. Well, I mean, we've said a lot. Um, we've talked a lot recently about our values and our top value is safety first, because especially when you're dealing with your money, the way customers view it is I want to be safe using the platform. And so uh, that's where our investments in infrastructure reliability and scalability have come in. And we haven't always been perfect here. I mean, look back to March of 2020, where you know, we, we had some service instability issues. And as an engineer, you know, that was, that was disappointing to me personally. But we've responded to that, scaling our systems 30x from those volumes uh, that, that we were seeing last year during the beginning of COVID and the, the market volatility and, and, uh, and the events. So just continuing to make progress, investing in customer support, expanding the live channel. Um, we've already made a lot of progress and um, actually, you know, putting Salesforce on the cover um, is, is, uh, is meant to signify that as well. Just that uh, this is going to be something that we get really, really good at. And I think as a public company, um, you guys and, and the broader public and our customers are just going to have to see us deliver. That, that's ultimately how, how trust is earned and, and grown over time. We're going to keep telling you what our focus is and, and what we're going to do and what we're going to deliver. And then um, you have to watch us deliver it. Proof is in the pudding, as the, as the English say. Um, very quickly, because I know I have to let you go. You've been very serious. How exciting is this day? Like, how does this moment feel? Can you put it into words for me, please? I think it, it's, it's humbling. Um, you know, I came to this country. I was uh, uh, an immigrant from Bulgaria. And I, I first came into JFK Airport when I was five years old in the early 90s and um, began my entrepreneurial journey in, in New York City as well. So now to be back here after six years uh, since Robinhood's launch, it's, it's really surreal. So um, I know I, I, I probably am very serious in general, but <laughs> I, I have to, um, I'm enjoying right. it as well. I, I can and see I think the it's excitement. great for customers. <laughs> hmm. A humbling moment. It's always interesting to think back and remember how and where these giant firms that list actually began, particularly for the founders too. And, and let's be clear here too, this isn't the first IPO to stumble a little out of the gate and others have recovered. Back in 2012, Facebook, which also happened to IPO at $38 per share, fell in the first few weeks as low as $17 a share before picking up the pace. Today, just to give you a look, near $360 a share. Hmm. All right, up next, a mindful moment for children. Malika Chopra on teaching children to medicate, meditate. We're back after this. 
2020 was a record year for stress, worry, anger and sadness worldwide. According to a recent survey, a record four out of 10 people reported experiencing, quote, a lot of stress over the previous 24 hours. And what's fascinating is children were not included in the study, but they're among the most vulnerable and ill-equipped to deal with stress. Well, my next guest says meditation could be the answer and it's never too early to start. Joining us now is the entrepreneur and author Malika Chopra. She's her most recent book is My Body is a Rainbow, which aims to teach meditation and mindfulness skills to young children. Malika, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I have to admit, I've read all of your books, including your latest one. And I think they're a brilliant introduction to, to mindfulness and to meditation, not just for sort of older children, but also much younger children, which I know is where your latest book, My Body is a Rainbow, is focused. Um, just start by explaining what you were hoping to bring to both parents and younger children with this book well first thank you so much for having me and yes these books i think are my contribution of sharing many of the lessons that i learned growing up about how to self-regulate how to feel peaceful when i became a parent i saw the need um, not just in my girls but also amongst their friends for tools um, tools to just be able to breathe um, tools to express their feelings, tools for self-reflection. And so the goal of my books is to give um, kids directly some of these tools, but also to help parents figure it out with their kids because we're all, all trying to figure out and do our best. You know, it's quite fascinating when you say the words mindfulness and meditation to some people who've never done this in their lives. I think they're probably going, oh, as they listen to this, that's not for me. I don't understand. But I think what people do need to understand is just how subtle you do this in the books. I mean, I find your books a great introduction for adults, never mind children. And we won't tell your uh, your father that because you're you're sort of uh, <laughs> competing with him to some degree in, in the entry level into this, which is fascinating. And I'm just going to hold up the book because you use colours as a way to do it. And just saying to people, just basic things like put your hand on your stomach and, and think about the emotions, what you feel when you're happy, when you're sad in these places. And then you tie it to something like as simple as saying, I am strong or touch your heart and I am loved. Just explain what I think for me is quite fascinating here is using color, tying it to emotions, tying it to surroundings, but also self-empowerment, which not only for children, I think, but for adults too, is so important. So yes, you know, I think as you mentioned, when we talk about meditation or mindfulness, or frankly, even stress or anxiety, it's really difficult to say what exactly do these words mean? You know, we use these words a lot. Ultimately, um, and this is why I love working with children, this is about breathing, about connection, about joy, um, and about release. And so in this book, My Body is a Rainbow, of course, it's written for two to five-year-olds, but actually the exercises in it are come from wisdom traditions, which are kind of exploring different parts of our body. So when you talk to a child and you say, um, you know, where do you feel nervous? They'll often say, oh, I feel butterflies in my stomach. Or when you're sad, they have heartache. Um, or they're very conscious about sweaty palms or, you know, their throat feeling tight. So uh, the goal of this book is to kind of go through different parts of our body where we feel big feelings. Kids are good at, um, feeling big feelings and we use breath 
Um, we use the color because, again, it just gives a, a way to access it without it kind of being um, vague. And uh, to and visualize then, it. And to visualize it. And then use affirmations so kids feel strong, they feel heard, they feel powerful. I mean, I've watched an interview with you as well, and you were talking about using food because a huge part of what you do here is also to try and make it fun. Um, strawberry. You and I both love chocolate. Chocolate's another one. Um, lime or a lemon. And even just you know, biting a lemon and talking about what the sensation is, how that feels, um, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. It's just allowing children, helping them in some way to verbalize emotions, verbalizing interactions and what's going on around them and, and talking to parents. I mean, these are basic things, but they're so important for life. And as you said, you know, you began doing this as a child and you've imparted this wisdom to your children too. Yes, and so the food exercise is a great one because it is fun. You do it together. But what I recommend is you use sight. So you look at the colors, so you know, right. the color of a red strawberry versus a lemon, um, the taste, the smells. But also you can think about the story of the food. How did it get to you? Where did it grow from? So even in a simple um, you know, meal, uh, you can really share something powerful with your children, but also for yourself. So uh, I'm glad you found that exercise helpful. Yeah, I do, because I, I think connecting not only the way that we're perceiving ourselves, but also how we interact with others. And that's what's so brilliant, I think, about your books. Um, What's your advice to parents? Because they can buy these books for children, but again, and I go back to the point I made about when you're talking about things like mindfulness and, and meditation, I think people can be daunted. What's your advice for parents if they're, they're seeing that their children are struggling at this moment, that they want to equip them better, and, and perhaps these books are a way to do it, but just advice to parents for, for helping their children, dealing with everything, themselves and their surroundings, their environment. So my first advice to parents is um, don't worry first about your children, worry about yourself. So um, are, do you have a practice? And because parents, we lead by example, not just words. So I do recommend that parents find a practice. Um, parents are conscious of the way that they eat, they move, they speak, because um, our kids are always watching us. But then with kids, it's keeping it really simple and really age appropriate. And that's why I'm working on these books. Make it fun. Um, my first book uh, that I wrote for kids is called Just Breathe. And it's as simple as that. Just take a deep breath in and out. And so um, these practices don't have to be complicated. They don't have to be intellectual. And in fact, it's kids who may show us how easy it is. So it's everything from just taking a deep breath to then maybe going to three breaths or four breaths to taking a mindful walk, um, a mindful meal. And the goal as parents should be to engage with your kids and have fun and also realize like each kid will find their own way. Never try to make um, a kid who's restless try to sit still for too long because that's going to uh, create stress. So maybe find a movement exercise that works. So the goal is to just, as I say, give them a tool or several tools and let them discover and play and have fun with it. I've got the perfect page for that, which involves colors swirling around your toes and fingers, pink, in fact, around your fingers and um, saying, I am magic, which was my favorite page of the book. Malika, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about it. You can hear I'm a fan of the book, so I truly am for adults, big kids as well as children. Malika Chopra, author.
and entrepreneur. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. For the port industry, time and space are crucial. And in Dubai, they're testing cutting-edge tech that can speed up the way containers are moved, one that could shape the future of our busy ports. Eleni Jokos has the story in today's episode of Think Big. A new day at the Jabal Ali port in Dubai. Thousands of boxes, thousands of containers. But how to find and pick up the right one quickly? Hello, fellas. How's it going? That's the daunting challenge for Patrick Bow. The next big idea in the port industry is uh, what you see here uh, behind me. That's the uh, box bay, the container high bay store. Port operator DP World is piloting a project to speed and automate logistics in Dubai ports, the first of its kind. It puts containers into a racking system. Uh, see it as a, as a bookshelf, but we can access every container directly on both sides to stack the containers up to 11 storeys high. The goal here is to find the containers without reshuffling, saving time, space and energy. We save about uh, 60%, 70% of the timing because we only handle productive moves. Conventional systems gives you, let's say, eight to nine productive per hour. And here we do 19 to 20 containers per hour per stacker crane. DP World says Box Bay can reduce the terminal footprint by up to 70%, but the team also likes the added safety features. And in a normal situation, uh, this would be all 100% automated. No hands, no controls. But if the system for some reason uh, uh, fails, the engineer can take over and take uh, manual control of the stacker crane. Global trade is recovering from the coronavirus economic downturn. And technologies like BoxBay could help DP World, which handles around 10% of global container traffic, keep up with the growing global demand for goods. If you ask me one thing that keeps me awake at night is technology. Technology today is a key for success. Key to be able to fulfill the needs and the changing needs and the requirements to handle cargo. But adopting developing tech comes with high costs and it isn't without its challenges. The issue, of course, is always how high you can go. What is the optimum? The higher you go, the more weight you're going to put. Sometimes the cost of going much higher will overweigh the benefit. From this to this, Box Bay is already giving a glimpse of how DP World's 64 ports and marine terminals around the world might work in the future. Eleni Jokas, CNN. Okay, and that just about wraps up the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Have a great weekend. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.